for people who are listening to this podcast, I really would encourage you to be super creative, super open-minded about how to apply them and to feel free to reach out to people like me who are you know, currently in corporate settings or whatever and just ping your ideas off of people because I think we're really kind of in the wild west and there's a moment right now we're living through where really cool ideas have the power to kind of revolutionize the state of the art that we're currently in. So um, we should take advantage of that. We're very lucky to be here and uh, yeah, I'm glad that you're, uh, you're also fighting a good fight. Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we unlock the secrets, tips, tricks, and mistakes of data science executives from around the world. With this, you can see what is possible, how things can be done well, how things can be done poorly sometimes with the mistakes being shared, and hopefully help guide your career and what you can do at your work. My name is Felipe Flores. I'm your host. And I'm a data science executive, so it's great to have conversations with my peers from around the world and get to pick their brain and share their stories. Today, we're speaking with Adam Bonifield. He is the VP of Artificial Intelligence at Airbus. He's currently based in France. He tells us about a huge team that he has built there, about 150 people. What they're doing there is phenomenal, applying AI to every corner of the business. In his journey to get there, he was a serial entrepreneur having two startups with big name investors. And he also worked in the US government. And he was one of the senior innovation fellows during the Obama administration. Before that, he was working with politicians to do fundraising online and was the first to bring that, a platform that did that into the market. The guy's incredible. His trajectory is amazing. The results, uh, I thought, really speak for themselves and uh, really humbled down to earth. Fantastic conversation. Lots to learn from this one, both from an entrepreneurship side, from managing corporates, and, and from a government perspective. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here is Adam. Data Futurology's audience is continuing to grow and grow. Did you know that over 12,000 other data enthusiasts across the globe are listening to this episode as well? Well, that's over 20,000 weekly listens to hear content that is loved and shared in the data community. To see how your brand can be featured here or how else Data Futurology can connect you to your audience, visit datafuturology.com forward slash sponsors or leave an audio message via the show notes below. Connect with us so we can collaborate we can help you grow the presence of your business, and you would also be helping to continue to grow data futurology. Thanks. Adam, mate, how are you going? Thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm keen to first ask you about your, your origin story into the world of data. How was it that you first got started? What was it that pulled you in? What are some of the memories of the early days of the world of data for you? That's a great question. So. For me, it's actually kind of a funny story um, because I never, I never really thought of myself as a data scientist. I was a computer scientist at school, and um, I, I did some statistics in, in university. And, and other than that, I mean, I was, I was really just interested in building, building stuff. Um, and so it was actually, it was actually through a political campaign. So originally. I started volunteering um, for this congressional candidate in New York, and I was obviously really into computers. I was really into digital, so I sort of, you know, saw that at the time, you know, this was this was 15 years ago. There was no real 
digital operation. There's nothing like that yet. Um, yeah. But it was right on the border, you know, when that stuff started becoming relevant. And so at the time I thought, you know, I think we could actually get some people to donate to your campaign online, you know, which was a crazy idea at the time. But yeah, it was, yeah well, why would they donate? You know, they don't know who I am. They don't live here, you know. And I said, well, yeah, but you're, you have kind of a national profile. This was at the time where the Democrats were trying to take back the House. And so there was some there's some movement to kind of get um, Democrats in, in elected. And so I started running some digital operations for him. And at the time, we didn't think we'd really make any money. And very quickly, we were able to raise I want to say a few hundred thousand dollars at least, you know, yeah. for a congressional candidate, that's a big deal. Yeah. And then I started building some um, data data tech essentially to to help maximize the amount of money we were raising. Number one, to make it a lot easier to donate, but then number two, to start um, targeting people online with asks that would be couched appropriately for them. And so we had this theory, um, and, and I say we because at the time I was allowed to hire some people because they were like, yeah, just bring in all your nerd friends to kind of help with this. <laughs> that we can raise a lot of money if we appropriately size the asks. And, uh, and so we did a lot of experimentation around that. Um, and didn't, we didn't know it at the time, but we were building essentially some of the first contextual targeting technology certainly the first used in politics and uh and we ended up raising through this one campaign you know several million dollars just by wow. by taking a data-driven approach to fundraising but not just fundraising also asking people to volunteer asking people um to sign up for newsletters and stuff like this and uh and, and so that experience eventually became my first entrepreneurial experience which was this startup called give Two, where we essentially uh, built a tool to do this at scale and, and released it to all of the major campaigns. And, and within that same election cycle, we were powering more than half of the um, congressional campaigns in the country. And eventually, wow, you know, licensing it to the um, to the Democrats and then also to the Republicans. And it became just a tool that was used um, to do online fundraising. So it was a special time because, you know, and, and, and there are moments like this today as well, but not not really, you know, there, it wasn't really known what you can do with data if you were like a little bit creative. Um, uh, and uh, and it wasn't that complicated, you know, there wasn't that complicated technology. It was just sort of deploying pretty old, uh, you know, pretty old targeting techniques in a sort of novel way. Um, and, you know, it ended up, you know, the Democrats did ultimately take the house. So, I mean, you know, some of these, digital tools ended up being the difference maker potentially in, um, in this massive uh, political shift that happened at the time. Yeah. Man, incredible, incredible. And um, and how how long did you did you uh, work in or have give to? So that was about um, two, maybe, maybe I want to say four years. I mean, it was very, I mean, the, the business was very cyclical because, um, you yeah. know, obviously, it, you know, it, it was a political tool, although uh, eventually, you know, there were there were users like the uh, RSPCA, United Way, uh, big, big nonprofits as well, but mm. all around that concept. And uh, and so and so then, um, yeah, I mean, my entrepreneurial career continued. Um, my partner and I um, who were working on that ended up founding another company called Spinnaker. 
which was a advanced analytics company and sort of I would say if if you could probably call it an AI company, I mean it was a um, yeah. it was an advanced let's say uh, real time analytics um, company that was basically just doing um, analytics in a different way. We sort of came to the realization that a lot of real time analytics was sort of broken that um, basically it imagined that there'd be this person behind uh, a big dashboard, you know, constantly checking to see what was going on. And, and, and like analytics had just moved on since then that regular people were using analytics, um, were using real time analytics. And so and they weren't the kinds of people who wanted all the knobs and, and dials they wanted, you know, or even had the time to really be constantly monitoring. And, and so a big, a big focus of that company was how can we change the paradigm? such that you know you don't need a data scientist to do this kind of work so we built a basically a you know series of different engines to sort of um to make sense of some of these analytical insights real-time analytical insights um for regular people so that that was the, the premise of that company and then yeah i mean all in all i think both companies were like took me all the way to i don't know they were like ten years of, of labors of love, basically. What type of things did you did you learn in in that journey in in finding um, and essentially tackling this this huge problem space of why hasn't this been productized in a way that's more accessible? Uh, what were some of the things that you learned or that you found surprising in that in that journey? Uh, you know, you learn a lot about. I mean, I think at the time, so for example, I'll say the first, the first product that we built was just a web analytics product. So, so basically, um, you know, first party product that you could use to make sense of your own web analytic data. Mm. And, uh, and that was sort of the, the start of the company. And then we ended up building essentially integrations for larger, lar larger other corporate partners where we were essentially building the pretty real time notification engine on top of their analytics. Yeah. And I think the big lesson we had, I mean, what was interesting is like there already are established interfaces for how to make sense of analytic data like visualizations. And um, and even on top of that, you know, like Google Analytics has a paradigm, for example, for how you're going to, to interact with data. And that and we so we had the realization of sort of like this paradigm was built essentially for either data scientists or I guess data analysts. And this, and this paradigm was essentially wrong if we're imagining mm -hmm. that the right, you know, the average person isn't actually really doing any kind of configuration at all. They're just consuming things and then they're taking other kinds of actions based on that. And so we knew that there was this new paradigm that's, that's needed, um, but then we really didn't have any kind of like UI reference point for how to design that paradigm. And I think we probably made the mistake of sort of at least with the first party product, imagining like very, very specific things that real people would want to do with that data. So maybe like um, to give you a real example, you're being talked about on a message board. So the UI should just be let somebody know what what's happening, give them a few bits of information and then immediately send them to that message board. So that's like, yeah. that's like the UI and you can consume that in a lot of different ways. You consume that on your phone, consume it in an email or some, something like this. But um, but that's not much of a UI. And in fact, like it's not that coherent. And I think there's still like a very big missing piece where it's like we need to build a new paradigm of like data storytelling and data visualizations built for regular people. And in the same way that we have a kind yes. of philosophical approach to data analysts, 
we yes. need a sort of something something equivalent and something new. And, and you see it happening. I mean, I think you see a lot of data storytelling and data journalism that's increasingly standardized and feels the same. Yeah. But I feel like there's just like a lot. I mean, you know, I, I would love to yeah. see who really care about this, really think seriously about what what should the future of this kind of data storytelling, data consumption look like if we're imagining that powerful analytical tools are really going to be consumed by just regular people who don't, who, who, who have a completely different mindset um, to consuming it. And so this is the big problem that I think still remains unsolved that because these tools yes. tend to be built by nerds who really want to, or sort of power users. And a lot of times big startups, actually the first users are these people. They're kind of like bad customers because they give the wrong um, feedback. Uh, we, we need to think more seriously about, you know, and then there are companies doing this obviously, but um, it's still a massive growth area, I think. Oh man, like I <laughs> could not agree more. Shit. Um, but do you do you think that that um, that data journalism goes on top of a or as part of a real time notification engine uh, that does the analysis for you? Um, so that that's sort of like the the two the two worlds that I've that I would be very keen to see come together. And in, in the past, in, in some of my jobs um, in, in finance, I used to work in finance, um, and now I'm, I'm in healthcare. Uh, but in, in finance, we we venture about down some very similar paths to you in the sense of real-time notification engines. Um, and and we wanted to do it on, on companies' financials. And the behind the scenes we did all the analysis that would typically go into dashboarding but then we ended up giving people a feed almost like a facebook feed which each tile was a, an independent individual insight that they could consume and then the what that how that insight was presented was posing a challenge for us and we we at the beginning started with things like we saw a trend uh, broken uh, so we had, you know, 12 months of revenue being in this band and now it's above or below that band and like quite sort of simple things that are not the way that people generally think about consuming this type of information. But I yeah. was, I was, um, yeah, also like searching for, for very similar ways. So, um, yeah, curious to know whether you're still combining or thinking that, that these two could be combined like a real time notification engine with some, with some insights and, the uh, the data journalism side. Yeah, I mean, I think that I mean, I think the concept of then moving into journalism is at least a step forward from that like widgetized dashboard UI concept. And it's like, I, and you know, and, and I think that that's basically state of the art in terms of visualization to say like, okay, mm -hmm. if we could simplify, um, you know, the UI to at least give these bite-sized nuggets of insights. Um, and then, and then just like present them in a sort of semi-structured way in the, in the dashboard. Yeah. That's valuable. And but again, like I, I still think that that's not that great. I mean, it's kind of mm -hmm. like imagining, like you know, you're kind of trying to write a story, or you're trying to sort of write a paper, and you just got a bunch of ideas, and you're sort of like throwing them all on a whiteboard and saying, like, okay, that's what we got. So that's not that great. <laughs> But that is sort of state of the art today, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think at least, at least the concept of journalism, which is to sort of take these these nuggets and and then um, organize them in a story, that's mm. um, that's closer, I think, to 
how, again, regular people like to consume stuff. Um, and so, and so, yeah, so to me, that's sort of, yeah, I guess I could say that that's like the, the bleeding edge of, of how to present this. But then most companies, of course, don't really take that journalistic approach to data. And I can tell you that's not how, you know, at Airbus, which is, you know, my, my world now, you know, right now, data-driven decision-making will, you know, sort of save the entire industry. And yet, you know, we still do what you do, you know, the the sort of dashboard for executive decision-makers. So, um, yeah, so it's it's still, I think, an unsolved problem. It's still, I think that to me that that's where, that's an example of where we need to go, or at least we need to come up with a more prescriptive, more sensible way, because the model of imagining somebody in a sort of, you know, crisis center with a big board on top of them, like looking at numbers going up and down, kind of like, you know, as you were saying in, in finance, I just don't think that's really how people are making decisions. You need something that fits much more to how decisions are actually made, which is like in a meeting, like after a yeah. presentation, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, agreed. Um, and how was it working with with the the guys at Anderson Horowitz? I know that obviously you had other investors as well. And um, and if you can tell us a little bit about the, you know, the VC and entrepreneur relationship as part of that. Yeah. So the um, so it was really terrific. Um, at the time, I mean, we were we were I think the first seed investment they made. So we were in kind of like uh, right. an an interesting category. I mean, apart from Y Combinator, that that's yeah. you know yeah. that that's their that's funded by A16Z, but but just from the fund itself. Um, and now they have a seed program. Um, but uh, yeah, the the it was it's an interesting place, you know, because we I mean we weren't from that far away. We were, we were in Washington D.C. at the time, and we moved out to California. Um, and uh, and so it, there was a little bit of sort of like celebrity shock. Yeah. Uh, we went to Sand Hill Road and I remember sitting in the lobby and the lobby, the like lobby room, it's just almost like um, it's, it's, it's designed to be like a bit of a California cool like library, but also waiting room. And <laughs> they told me that the, the we, we were kind of looking at all the books. They said this 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 room is an exact replica of um mark andreessen or i think what either one of the two one of their personal libraries so when they buy a book they buy two books one book they put in the personal library one book they put here so this is kind of like a window into their intellectual you know interests and that's just like so and like i've never had such an experience where i was like what it's almost like you know, people have, you know, more money than God, right? So, kind of, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so obviously they would have two giant libraries. And, uh, Which and were exactly the same. <laughs> right. They're all, they're both the same. And so anyone waiting to meet with them would get a view into their mind through their library. So I thought that was quite cool. I mean, there's a hundred things like this where, um, you know, you have, uh, you know, there's just like weird shit that you'd only see in like a video game or a movie. Um, I remember when, when we first started, we were brought in by 500 startups, so we were part of this incubator. Mm -hmm. Now, 500 startup, startups have now made 5,000 investments. At mm -hmm. the time, we were like their 100th investment. So we were part of like the second batch of, of companies that nice. they made. 
So, uh, so, so, um, Dave McClure, who, uh, mm-hmm. you know, is, uh, much started, started the, the, um, fund. Uh, I remember he gave a speech to us and, you know, he was a bit of a celebrity in his own right. Now he's a celebrity for yeah. various reasons. So <laughs> he made, um, this speech saying, look, I don't care. I don't care what you do. I don't care who you are. You're kind of, you know, just kind of like, like horns <laughs> me, but that's okay. Because the good part about that is you can do whatever the fuck you want. And he was like, the only thing I don't want you to do is just don't write on the, on the windows. Like this is a very expensive office. It was like the top floor of the tallest building um, in Mountain View. He was like, just don't write on the windows. Do whatever the fuck you want otherwise. <laughs> and then he thought about it. And he said, you know what? Actually, if, you, if you're making enough money, we'll get new windows. Right on the windows. And <laughs> to me, I always think about that um, because it's, it was like very much the spirit of the time where it was like, yeah. just like there were no rules. And if you're successful, you could kind of like make your rules. And that was a really great, you know, that was a great feeling. You know, that was a really amazing thing that our investors left us with, which is to say, like, Mm. usually you have bosses and your bosses are essentially saying this is the right way and wrong way to do your job. Mm. And it was really nice to have investors instead of bosses because they're the ones saying to you, like, there is no right way or we don't know what the right way is. We just are betting on you. And really, this is quite transactional. You know, the bet, if it pays off, will be your best friend. And so just let us know what we need to do to help you make the bet pay off. Wow. Wow. It's a nice, I actually think if you're an entrepreneurial person, that's like a nice relationship. And actually you can have that, I think, I don't, I'm curious about your experience, but I think you can have that in a corporate relationship as well, where you have more like investors and sponsors who are really letting, letting you do your thing and empowering you. And I think, you know, getting a taste of that earlier in your career can be really nice. Very nice. And it's definitely um, something that I've seeked um, and, and really, yeah, really strive to make it a part of my corporate career um, to have that relationship of, yeah, of somebody that is very hands-off. Uh, like I've had bosses that are very hands-off, like you do your thing. Um, definitely like there to help if you want and and definitely like ride on your successes. Um, but but overall pretty pretty chilled and kind of like, you know best, go, go forth, go forth yeah. and do. Um, but man, that's amazing that you you were with like yeah, Mark Andreessen, you know Horowitz, Dave McClure, like that's a that's awesome. Like you're a part of the you know the um, that time of of you know Silicon Valley, and we were many people like myself were looking at it from from the distance and and watching stuff on YouTube or or getting to see like Dave when he comes to Australia and stuff like that. But you were right there in the mix in the in the um, second batch of 500 startups. Amazing. Um, really amazing. And tell me, um, tell me about your, your time at Airbus and how did you decide to move from White House to Airbus? How did you end up in Airbus and how's, how's it been so far? Well, the, yeah, so that's a long story. Um, but to summarize, I mean, you know, Airbus is like, um, truly, I mean, I, I had colleagues essentially, um, who were working there? I knew the CTO at the time, and um, and and so you know, I was I was thinking about moving. I mean, 
my partner and I were thinking about moving abroad anyway. Um, so, you know, it, it's a very special company, I should say. Um, and I think, and this is maybe, this is maybe helpful advice to anyone who's like thinking about making that jump into, into sort of like a corporate setting. I think what, what makes it very special, at least what ma made it work for me is, um, number one, just being in love with the product. So like, um, you know, I mean, I, I was the kid who went to the Air and Space Museum every, right. you, know, week, you know, from when I was, you know, a little kid. Um, so, uh, so I was just in, in love with aircrafts. I mean, and, and uh, by the way, if you, if you work for a company with a really, you know, terrific product or it's just a very specialized product, you're surrounded by people who I can only describe it as a page, have a patriotic feeling about what they do. And, you know, uh, I remember going to the final assembly line for the first time and you see, yeah. you see basically this half assembled uh, uh, aircraft. So you can really see the complexity of the millions of different parts that go into creating it. And, you know, you get people, you know, the person who was giving me the tour, who was like a friend of mine, uh, was almost like feeling emotional describing what it takes to bring this thing into life. And it's a nice place to be when people feel so emotionally passionate about what they do. Um, yes. it's, a, it's a very beautiful thing. And then I think, especially if you're in, in, in interested in data technology, and I think the, the same is true in finance and healthcare, I think, um, which are your fields, but uh, if working in an environment with many different applied problems where the applied problems involve a tremendous amount of complexity, it's mm. just like a terrific place to be. I mean, it's truly just like a playground. So in the case of Airbus, I mean, we have a satellite division, um, well, oh, I should say a defense and space division. We have a division, a helicopters division and a commercial division. And then obviously within commercial, there's so many different sub problems in AI, like there's the, you know, autonomous flight, the sort of thing probably everyone thinks of, but actually like the vast majority of use cases are just related to industrial manufacturing and logistics and engineering, mm -hmm. and, you know, um, and, and all the support functions. And so basically like if you're working in data science, more or less, like I would just really look for companies with very, very complex applied problems because you will never be bored. And I could say for our team, I mean, they're really like, I mean, I, I have to say this is, it's funny because my Airbus team is like one of the most professionally happy teams um, I've ever been a part of because we're just working on a new interesting problem every day and they're all unsolved problems. Um, so it's just like an amazingly fascinating thing. And then I should also say where to the extent they're unsolved problems, a lot of the solving it involves advancing the state of the art. So yes, like where you're doing essentially or maybe like downstream research, I should say, um, because we also have a research team. Um, but where, where you're doing research only because you have to in order to solve the problem that you're working on. And it grounds you very much in, in the data science problem because you have like a real, really, you know, uh, a real use case that you're working on. It's not purely an intellectual use case. And that's a very, very good environment to work in because um, you really can feel pulled forward by um, the, the special problems, for example, in AI that you're working on. And there's tons of examples of them um, where, you know, our team has logged new patents or presented, you know, um, new research findings that have advanced the state of the art. So um, that's, that's a very special thing. Um, that's very, very, very special. Um, 
Wow, and that's, that's amazing. Very different from working in the U.S. government. I mean, the U.S. government does not. The U.S. government is maybe like ten to fifteen years behind uh, the private sector, so it has a lot of really important problems to solve. But in terms of like hard data science problems or like just hard technology problems, I would say working in these applied settings, you're really you really are hitting the the hardest problems. And even the largest tech companies in the world will come to Airbus for help solving these problems because. In a corporate setting, you have access to all the data, you have the use cases, you have the customer needs. So this is really, in my opinion, this is really where the state of the art is being advanced. Amazing, amazing. And I think that's that's awesome advice. That is fantastic advice. And tell me, um, this 150 people in in the team, obviously a, a quite a quite a broad team. How how are they organized? What are the some of the sub teams? Uh, and and if you can describe some of the some of the work processes, what is the type of the the structure and, and workflow, how the team tackles all these challenges ongoing? Okay, so basically, there's uh, I would say if I were going to talk about the split, the they would they would be split between um, I would say a core data science team and sort of like um, early stage delivery team, which is like on the earlier side of the project lifecycle. And then I would call it maybe like an IT, an IT team um, to, yep. be, to be simplified, um, where it's like they're really working on uh, scaling, industrializing, um, securing anything that comes out of this, this other team. So in terms of the, the former team, um, so the original team was basically all data science profiles. And the reason why we built it that way was that, you know, at the, in the early stages, we were basically just prototyping stuff. And I don't think we really even had the luxury to think about how to deploy these projects at scale because we were solving like yeah. the earliest stage problems of just kind of like, what does it even look like to do a <laughs> data project in, um, you know, in Airbus? And fortunately, uh, you know, fortunately for me, um, there were people that came before me that built essentially this massive data platform called Skywise, where um, it, 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 it's become essentially a hub um, of, 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 of collecting all the data assets in our broader space. Um, so Airbus has led this sort of generational project in collecting tons and tons of data from suppliers, from airlines, um, from, from us as the um, as the uh, OEM, the, the people making the machines. And, uh, and so that, that basically meant that, like if you're working in AI, it's, it's the best place to be, right? Because you you, you're solving the problem that basically every other organization has, which is just not being able to access enough data. So we had That's the data, right. but we just didn't really know how to deploy it. So we had a bunch of data scientists that were like working out of Jupyter Notebooks and just like playing around with problems. Yeah. And then as we became more successful, we were able to grow more structure within the team. So we basically started onboarding a bunch of, I would say, more like computer science profiles, more um, okay. uh, more product manager profiles, um, yeah. more BD profiles, which actually is is secretly like quite an important role because there's a lot of work just to be done in scoping a problem appropriately yeah. and doing design thinking work um, to understand how to build it. So then that allowed us to move from sort of doing what I would call like early stage MVPs or sort of late stage groups of concept into more like proper products where 
we would think seriously about not just how to solve an individual problem, but how to grow a product that would essentially live and breathe with the um, with with the sort of parts of the company that it was designed for. And so yes. this is a and, very and sorry. And what was what was the difference between the the product owner and the BD? I would say like a product manager is someone quite technical who um, who's really owning the overall life cycle of like a very serious product. So yeah. to give you, I can give you a real life example. I'm trying to think of one that would be easy to explain. Um, so for example, computer vision, shop floor computer vision. So computer vision is a you know massive topic. And you know, we start off with the ambition of we want to bring this into a shop floor environment, but um, you know, it's it's not like a plug and play problem to solve, especially in Airbus, where the manufacturing environment is so complex, where it's not mm -hmm. like, you know, in some companies, you know, the, the the way you'd use computer vision is you would like have like a little part moving across a line and you just like look for defects in it using cameras as your sensor. That's like a highly structured, a much more narrowly solvable problem than an Airbus when you have like, if you can imagine as I explained this final assembly line, people walking around the shop floor environment. Um, and, and, you know, and obviously all the sensitivities involved in that where we don't really want to collect any personal data around people. We just kind of want to understand what's happening in the manufacturing process. Like that's a much, much more complex space. And the techniques you need um, in terms of understanding the actions and objects and and and, um, and equipment that are is moving through, it's just much more dynamic. So, um, so that's a case where like hmm. you really need somebody with a deep technical background to um, de design that overall product lifecycle and be the person making the technical decisions um, around roadmap again. And so, but but then at the same time, you also have uh, a very complex uh, stakeholder network. And somebody mm. needs to manage those relationships as well. So those that's how I would describe um, the difference. Exactly. And both are a technical job, but one is much more of a stakeholder management role, one is much more of a technical role. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So then you're you're starting to to build out that that part of the team. So you're sort of taking us on the on the journey, starting with the core data scientist to to then this side of the team. And, and then, then what I happened? Think, you know, we we ended up actually reinvesting in the data science side and recruiting much more specialists in specific domain areas. We sort of made the decision to really focus on a few different um, sort of AI um, applied AI domain problems and, and recruit mm -hmm. specialists who essentially became experts using um, Airbus Lingo in these different uh, different applied problems. And, and essentially, these people took on board long-term kind of i would say downstream research but maybe you could just say long-term um ai uh development areas um to take responsibility for whether it's kind of related to uh techniques in using knowledge graph to understand mm -hmm. um, some of the domain specific knowledge graph problems we have or i would say nlp problems we have um, to computer vision, to anomaly detection, to conversational assistance. I mean, there's many different problems that where Airbus has very specific applied um, uh, states of the art that need to be advanced. So that's that's another component of the team. And then finally, um, once we were started making some progress in some of these places, we started seeing opportunities to sort of create platforms that would open up 
a lot of the breakthroughs we made to the rest of the company. So if you have these thousands of analysts, you know, a lot of them have been, or a lot of them are actually quite upskilled and, and could, you know, have actually joined our team. So there are people who have gone through our upskilling program that have then ended up joining the central team, which is quite a cool thing. But then a lot of the times they stay within their function and they're sort of embedded um, solving data science problems within their um, domains. And so for us, the challenge is often, you know, these people have been upskilled, but there's sometimes also a challenge in downskilling the problems they have to solve. So, you know, these people don't need to be experts in um, NLP. They, they maybe need to be experts in applying NLP libraries to solve their problems or, you know, using an anomaly detection platform to detect anomalies in, um, you know, for example, uh, flight test data. So these are um, things that we can build that, can sort of at scale give kind of like technical tools to upskill people to solve um, to solve data related problems. And this is this is another big component of our team. So there's a bit of this evolution. So we started with these early stage groups of concept to moving towards like projects that we would deliver that had a pretty narrow scope to then moving into these like massive products and platforms that are really, you know, the things creating value at scale. And um, and you've seen this sort of exponential growth in the amount of um, financial value, let's say, that we were able to return to the company just from doing this kind of work. Um, and I should say as well, like a lot, I think a lot of organizations make the mistake of too heavily leaning on outsiders, like um, external partners mm. to do a lot of projects for them. And I think one of the risks of doing that too much, at least, is that you never actually then build these homegrown competencies. And yeah. at least in our case, this is where we've seen all of the value, I mean, not all, but the vast majority of value come from going on the journey and then realizing, hey, there's this thing that there's no, there's nobody in the market building it, there's nobody worrying about it. It's just a problem that we encountered. And if you have people inside your company that whose job it is to figure out how to deliver it, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna be the ones who discover it and they're gonna be the ones who kind of help at least build the first version of the solution to it. Amazing. That's that's incredible. That's incredible. Um, I I could keep asking you questions for uh, ages, man. This is super super interesting. I just had a look at the time. Um, I am going to be respectful of of your time. Um, and so, man, I uh, will will leave it there for now. This has been absolutely amazing. Um, and. Thanks, thanks so much for for coming on the show. Do you have any any sort of um, final thoughts or anything that you that you wanted to um, wrap us up with? No, like I actually, I'm, I feel like I've been talking the whole time. I'm actually really curious to hear about your um, situation. But yeah, another time over beers, proper beers. I love and, it. I love um, it. <laughs> but no, no. Thank you so much for taking the time. I hope it was helpful. You know, um, super helpful. And, uh, and yeah, I think, uh, you know, I mean, the, my parting thought is just, we are um, really truly living in a historically important moment where all of these new analytical techniques are being brought into the world. And I think we've talked a little bit about historically those moments, and I think we're living through one right now, um, especially in AI, where um, we're just starting to penetrate some of these applied problems. I think for people who are listening to this podcast, I really would encourage you to be super creative, super open-minded about um, how to apply them and to feel free to reach out to people like me who are, you know, 
currently in corporate settings or whatever and just ping your ideas off of people because I think we're really kind of in the wild west and there's you know there, there's a moment right now we're living through where really cool ideas have the power to kind of revolutionize the um the state of the art that, that we're currently in so um we should take advantage of that we're very lucky to be here and uh yeah i'm i'm, I'm glad that you're uh, you're also fighting the good fight man excellent note to end on thank you so much for being in the show that brings this episode to conclusion Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.